I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of GreenRope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Festock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Theater. Hey, and welcome to episode 26. You've made it. Now, if this is your first episode, thank you, number one. But we are here. High level wisdom for new generation leaders. It is the middle of the summer and it is hot. But this show continues to get hot along with the temperature outside. And today's show is no exception. I want to introduce you to a gentleman named Jim Carr. Now, if you don't know who he is, you will definitely get an understanding of him, his flavor and his excitement and energy around being able to talk with companies and individuals like yourselves about managing the message. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, If someone told you about this show or however you found it, why don't you do us a favor and go out to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and give us a shout. Tell us how you found the show. But today's show is with Jim Carr. Now, there's a lot of things that I could point out about Jim's background, not only just being a class speaker by his Duke MBA class or, you know, being the CMO of a marketing firm uh, or, you know, now running his own consultancy uh, in an affiliate of DSG and working with Fortune 500 companies. The list goes on and on. But more importantly, what I want to tell you about this gentleman is he has a passion for ensuring that you get your messaging right, whether you're an executive baby boomer who's trying to communicate to the next generation inside of your global company or whether you're just trying to communicate a simple message to your leadership into two and three levels down this gentleman gets it and he helps companies like yours do the same so take a listen to my interview with jim carr who will help us all understand how we can manage the messaging better take a listen so jim i want to welcome you and thank you so much for coming to the show today well chris thank you for a very kind introduction and congratulations to you on the growth of the High Level Wisdom podcast. I think you've really struck a chord. And uh, one of the reasons I started listening and then reaching out to you, uh, a lot of my professional work is helping bridge that gap of helping uh, the younger generation learn how to reach out uh, to and speak to the older generation and for the older generation to learn how to to teach and motivate and try to figure out the younger uh, generation as well. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So here's what I would like to do. I want to give you a couple of minutes. If you don't mind, just share with everyone kind of, you know, where did your journey start? I mean, what city and town were you in? You know, did you work and start out as a kid in the meat market? Like, where? how did you get to to where you are today, you know, to to going from being, you know, as most of us do, right? We kind of start out as an individual contributor and then eventually something clicks and we decide to take on more responsibility. But just share everybody with you a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure. And uh, Chris, kind of depending upon how you keep score, I'm either on the young end of the boomers or I'm an old Gen Xer. Um, but, uh, <laughs> my, my professional path has been really uh, nonlinear. Uh, a lot of the changes have come uh, from those that I instigated on my own, having that entrepreneurial bent and wanting to do something different. Uh, in at least one case, it was forced upon me and I had to react to it. Um, I didn't start in a meat market. Um, but my first job where um, I was kind of legally working and, and having to make money on my own uh, was back in high school. And I had a very important need. I, I had to be able to uh, pay for a car and put gas in it. And uh, so I, I had a little hometown in the southern half of Georgia 
and I worked as a DJ at a country radio station. Uh, All right. It was what's available. Uh, and then later, I was trying to earn a little extra money by selling advertising time on this uh, little radio station. So I'm going out as a teenager, as a kid, to people who own small businesses and trying to get them to do some advertising on the radio station. So going out and trying to sell an intangible to someone who's 30 or 40 years older than you at that stage definitely got me out of any comfort zone I might have been in. Uh, so from that point, I, my professional dream really uh, was around the media business. I thought I might be a, a media executive someday. So I went through college, went through the Duke MBA program, as you mentioned. Uh, and by the time I was coming out of grad school, a lot of the great jobs were in finance. And uh, and in terms of leading a business, I thought, well, maybe that's the skill to have. So I, I spent a couple of years in my mid-20s as a corporate banker in New York City. And uh, again, way out of my comfort zone from a kid from a small town in Georgia. Uh, but I learned a lot um, and worked really hard. I watched a lot of the managing directors, the really senior people, uh, how they went about their jobs. Uh, a lot of that sunk into me in terms of their work ethic. But I knew that that was not where I wanted to be long term. So I went back to this idea about radio. And um, so with a friend and a, a business partner, someone I knew from my MBA work, we decided we wanted to do something very different. Uh, so we, we found a couple of radio stations, uh, again, in a, a smaller market. Um, and I knew how to borrow money. And so we thought uh, in our own romantic way that we might be able to go out and run them and see if we could make something of them. So, uh, so there I am in my late 20s. We are on the air, we're selling ads, we're trying to grow the business and be involved in the community, all that. Uh, we figured we would go, Chris, until we either made a big business out of it or ran out of money or found something uh, better to do. And it was mostly along <laughs> those, same, those same lines. So uh, a few years into it, my, uh, my business partner and friend had something else he wanted to do. And so we decided we would, we would sell those stations. And so, so there I was, um, still pretty young, thinking about what's next. And I thought I really liked this idea of learning and teaching. And uh, so the life of a professor consultant type seemed like it would be really cool and a really good fit. So I went back to my undergraduate alma mater, the University of Florida, got that PhD that you mentioned, and started a professor career. Uh, so I was teaching things like media management and marketing and advertising, uh, all about how do you craft a message and share and distribute that message in the best way possible. Well, um, I was on my third uh, stop on uh, my, my teaching part of my, uh, of my career, and I decided to make another abrupt change. I had made tenure, Chris, so I had job security, but um, I was doing a lot of consulting at the time, and one of my consulting clients had a couple of businesses, and he was adding a third, and was putting together a management team to help participate in buying that business and running it, and gave me the opportunity to be a chief marketing officer. So it was in... Uh, the combined business was bottled water, um, delivery of all that. So if you'll see guys in different markets, they go around and they deliver uh, water and case goods and coffee and those sorts of things to offices and, uh, and homes. So we had a network of those um, in the eastern half of the country and then uh, manufacturing containers as well. So I was back in a, in a corporate leadership role. 
and we were really a niche player, as, as you mentioned. We were going against much, much bigger companies like Nestle and the Coca-Cola Company and PepsiCo in that beverage and bottled water business. Um, and our little program, two years in, was judged the, the best in the world by people in that industry. Wow. We had very high hopes. And, um, and one of the lessons that I learned in all of that, Chris, is that sometimes it's actually easier if you're the small guy in an industry to compete against the big guys because you can move faster. You, get, you, know, you don't get bogged down by bureaucracy right. and the like. Right. And so we were able to find our niche and work it really hard and work it really fast. Now, things were going really well, but we had pinned a lot of our hopes on getting a major distribution deal, and um, that fell through. And so the company had to contract, and you know, guess who? Uh, you, you're very active in the world of marketing and sales and HR and the like, and you know uh, who tends to get cut when, uh, when things take a downturn. And right. I got laid off. I got laid off. And so here was a change that I didn't plan and I didn't want. Um, and I had already turned down the security of a tenured teaching job. And, uh, and, and so now I didn't even have the things that went with being a corporate executive, right? You know, all that support network that's there. And it was a very uncertain time. Uh, I spent some time working with some marketing and advertising agencies, helping them a bit with some research and creative, et cetera. But um, a really important turning point for me, Chris, came um, less than eight years ago, I think. Uh, it was a Saturday morning. And I was taking one of my sons. He was very young at the time. He was going to a soccer practice. And really, soccer practice for young kids is just they just run back and forth on a field, chase the ball. There's really not much strategy involved to it. Right, right. So I'm standing next to a few other dads there with my uh, cup of uh, Starbucks watching the kids you know, go back and forth. And I got into a conversation with this one dad. We had that, hey, what do you do kind of conversation. And it turns out that he worked for a niche consultancy called DSG that provides sales playbooks and training and coaching systems, uh, typically for bigger business-to-business -business companies uh, that go out for their field sales teams and help the clients know what to say and what to do in their conversations with customers. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, they were looking for another consultant to add to the team. And, okay. and so I got connected that way. And so these days I, um, I have that relationship that has continued to this day uh, with DSG, and that has given me entree to work with about a dozen members of the Fortune 500 around the world. And then, um, also, as you also mentioned, I do my own individual coaching and consulting and speaking all around effectiveness and customer conversations uh, at Jim Carr, K-A-R-A. RH.com in case you'd like to look. So, um, again, what I find really interesting about what you're doing with the podcast is it uh, relates very vividly to what I see a lot of my own work these days because typically my client is an executive, could be a CEO, could be head of marketing or sales or HR, and that person is trying to train and motivate their teams, often younger workers, um, also recruit younger workers. And on the other side, lots of times it are those millennial young professionals who in their jobs 
are trying to find ways to better communicate with executives on the customer side. How can I, Absolutely. as a younger person, break into whether you want to call it the C-suite or the executive or the, or the business leader? And so, uh, and I also am doing a, a, a fair amount of speaking to, oftentimes, to student groups or executive uh, trainees and the like. So it's interesting these days from both the, the clients who hire me, the people I speak to, those I serve, and, and just what I see, it's, it's a foot in both of those worlds, as you're addressing on the podcast, both the younger uh, and, and the older workers as well. Absolutely. And, and, and I want to be able to use this time today for our audience to be able to dive into just that. And before we even get there, um, you know, people, you always meet people and you always find like these unique um, common ground elements. Right. So I'll, I knew you were cool because when I saw that you went to the University of Florida, so I grew up in Gainesville, Florida. So, of course, I'm a Gator fan and you know, all of those great things that just happen in nice. life like that, you know, so it's, you know, Great minds think alike. I mean, why not? I Absolutely. Mean, <laughs> uh, we'll, can, can we sneak a, a brief Go Gators? Absolutely. Go Gators. I mean, I don't know who would not want to hear that. But, you know, that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> um, so so uh, the, the cool part about what I think that you offer as perspective to our audience is you've got a chance to work with multiple companies and you've been able to kind of, as you said, you see the executives and what they're trying to communicate. You also see the individual contributor and that young emerging leadership and what they're trying to communicate. And there's got to be some synergy right there in the middle, right? There's got to be a sweet spot. And so through the work that you've done, what kind of impacts, what kind of things have you seen that millennials are, are, are kind of having and putting on the workplace today that for you have just been kind of some of those aha moments as you've worked with a lot of these different executives? Well, a great question. And I've heard some of these things uh, your other guests on the podcast talk about. Uh, and I think when you talk about impact, there's that surface level, but then there is the really important and deep impact that's a little more below the surface. So Absolutely. As, I go, as I go around, um, I'm spending a lot of time if we're doing training or workshops and things at client locations, different spots around the world, mostly in the U.S., but in lots of different areas. And, and so as you go to those work areas, they are more open and casual, a lot of ping pong tables, a lot of good food that's available, a lot of you know, bikes and options of where people work and when and how they work. And so um, a lot of those things that you can easily see on the surface is uh, about giving those workers, particularly the millennials, a lot of flexibility. But under the surface, I see organizations trying to also be very practical and have a sense of shared purpose to the work that people do. Uh, I, I tend to find, and, and a lot of this we're painting with a broad brush, but millennials are less likely to want to have a job just for money or for the sake of that they're supposed to have a job. They like to think that there is a direct connection to a greater social and community good. And so I see a lot of work in organizations in both uh, recruiting and retention and the motivation of younger workers in bringing that to the surface. And what I find is an impact from the kind of work that I do, oftentimes we're trying to equip people with a sense of how to talk about the business and understand the business in saying it to the outside world, 
And what happens is when we I collaborate with, with clients is there's a better sense inside as well. And, wow. um, and I think that's the, the impact of uh, people being able to go, oh, that is what we do. That is the impact that we have. And here's how I can understand it and explain it to my mom explain it to my friends um, and explain it to other people as well so that it tends to reinforce that sense of purpose and pride. But I think that's um, the, the key thing, uh, Chris, is really um, more sense of uh, the why, the WHY behind the organization and what they do. Absolutely. So do you, do you, I guess in the work that you've seen, do you think that the communication style is maybe what can be a hindrance in learning how to communicate internally. Because as I'm listening to you talk, as you mentioned, right, there's, I think we all can figure out what a company is asking me as an individual contributor to communicate to an outside world, right? That That's one part yes. of it. But I think that for the company to thrive, for the company to grow, there's got to be, from a, a longevity standpoint and a relationship building standpoint, a way to communicate and finding that sweet spot internally. Do you think that baby boomers and millennials um, are struggling on that front internally, learning how to communicate uh, effectively to one another inside of an organization? They are struggling, and I find it's getting worse. Uh, unless it's you're very intentional about bringing that together. See, there's a there's a big gap, in, and I find it to be wide and getting wider. That gap in the communication skills and habits that baby boomers versus millennials have. You know, you can talk about, oh, well, communication is the key, but it's really trying to figure out, so where, where are the soft spots or where, what are we missing when it comes to communication? So if you think about the more mature workers, those of uh, an older generation, their communication world has typically been one of more synchronous communication, right? So, so it's sender and receiver at the same time either face-to-face -face or over the phone, like we're doing right now, or, um, or longer-form writing, you know, writing reports and memos, et cetera. Sure. For millennials, on the other side, they've come up in a world that's dominated by asynchronous communication. So the, the sending and receiving isn't happening at exactly the same time. A lot of social media, uh, posting things, uh, and then, so it's not happening in real time, but uh, there's some instant messaging and, and the like, but where it's verbal, it's very informal. Um, a lot of just, you know, short text, short blurbs uh, may not be grammatically correct, right? Um, a lot of use of visual communication, pictures, short videos, and the like. So that landscape sets up a big chasm mm -hmm. between the two generations. It's not that they don't have the interest or the motivation to communicate. It's just they're not equipped and comfortable in the same way. Uh, it's just not set up for easy success there. The good news I find is that both sides really want to bridge the gap. And this podcast is a step in that direction. And millennials that I deal with do want to connect professionally and personally with Gen Xers and boomers. And certainly the corporate leadership, both in their role as customers and as employees, they want to better understand and engage with, with uh, millennials as well. You know, and you, you bring up a really good point because I'm also wondering and thinking about the 
the larger impact and a larger scale of that work. And so I kind of think about, you know, just how then, you know, how do you go from, uh, you know, identifying that problem, right? And then learning both sides of how they're communicating. And then what is the most effective? Because I'm, I'm sure there's probably a, a CEO, CEO right now listening or CMO listening right now saying, yeah, but you know, I can't spend all of my time, you know, trying to communicate, you know, and spending all of our resources about the internal messaging when we've got to focus on making money. So, so I guess, how do you, what do you see kind of as the dangers of not being able to communicate well internally, the actual message you're trying to cultivate? Well, you certainly lose opportunity. Um, I think you lose opportunity in the business to grow. Um, and one of the things that we can unpack a bit uh, as we go along here. So when executives are trying to, uh, for lack of a better term, figure out millennials, it really uh, it, it's impactful in a couple of different levels. One is as employees, as workers, right? So I need to attract talent. There is a war for talent in a lot of areas, uh, industries, skill sets, geographic areas. That's real. And if you can't appeal to and attract and retain that right group of younger workers, you can't grow. And on the other hand, uh, we're getting and we will very soon be in a point in most industries where the majority of their customer base or their prospective customer base are millennials as well. And so if you can't figure out how to communicate your value to that group as, as customers, then you also can't grow. So I, um, it, it's not a question of whether the leadership needs to do this. And I, I find, Chris, they recognize it. They may be frustrated at times and they don't know exactly how to go about it. Sure. But if you look at, at uh, the demographics and if you look at the opportunities, both on uh, the internal part with having the right teams in place and keeping them there, and also the external, just whether you're running a for-profit, not-for-profit, an association, whatever it is, they're all talking about how do we find young customers? How do we find young volunteers and donors? How do we find younger members? Uh, this is a, a huge thing for professional associations. Uh, so they're all recognized that, that if you don't get this right, you're simply going to get stagnant and ultimately decline. Well, well, you know, on the other end, I've talked to a lot of different CEOs who might actually push back on that, Jim. And I would love for you to speak to this because I've heard a lot of CEOs who say to me, Chris, yes, it's great. Yes, I think we should, you know, have millennial engagement and we should be figuring out how do we communicate. But they will also tell me in the same breath that they'll say, hey, Jim, you know, right now I can't have millennials in our workspace right now because right now they have too many things going on at that age. They're young. They're making having young families, so they need more time off. And right now I need people that are at least over 40 because I know that they can put in the time and the effort and investment I need in order for my company to continue to move. What do you say to that CEO? I would say that's short-sighted. And I understand having been um, a CMO and, uh, and having been in those roles, you're always trying to just take care of the immediate. And, and uh, so we would have in our world, you know, trying to find customers and, and distributors and employees in, in lots of different areas. 
that was always a struggle. But that's not a that's not just an HR piece. That's just uh, that's not confined to one area. That really is for the the future of the entire business. Um, name for me an industry that isn't struggling to find uh, great young talent. I mean, I just don't really know one. Um, one of my my clients. Um, lately it works in the manufacturing space and they will say that's the biggest pressure on their business and on the other manufacturers that they serve. Um, they call it the great shift change. You know, you think about manufacturing workers working shifts. Right, um, absolutely. It has already happened that right now there are something like 3 million what we would consider really good manufacturing jobs that need people with skills and credentials that go unfilled and that number is getting bigger so you've got this big uh, wave of older workers who are going to be planning their retirements who are going to be retiring over the next five years and so um, you know anyone who, who takes a look at that and thinks that they're immune to it and we see the same things in healthcare we see the same thing in a whole range of professional services uh, etc uh, hospitality, you name it. I just I don't see an industry that's not affected, and and I frankly don't see a whole lot of executives who aren't at least aware of it. And again, they may be dealing with the immediates sure. um, and their exposures in the short term, uh, but but most leaders take a look at this and they say, if I don't at least begin this process now, if they haven't started it already, some of them are getting very active with um, local colleges, universities, school systems, trade schools. Some are getting really active in other ways, um, in, in the digital way and in the, uh, the more analog, hands-on way. Right. If, if so, they haven't started it yet, they, they, they better start now because you can't look at this in three years or five years and you haven't gotten down that road and think that you're going to be competitive. Absolutely. So let's even just take that first example that you mentioned, manufacturing. Why do you think they're struggling, you know, and I know you're not in the HR space like that, but why do you think they're struggling gaining talent? Is it because, let's just be honest, maybe the job isn't as sexy, or is it because yeah. they're struggling to tell the actual great story about that job? I think it's both. And uh, the the reality is that a lot of those are, are really good jobs. But part of that gap is the communication of it, the perception of what that uh, job is like and the ability to get out there and, and train and recruit and retain. Um, you see, uh, we see evidence of it in a lot of areas um, with, uh, with pushes, again, for the trade schools as well as four-year programs and, uh, or for people who uh, have a high school degree or equivalent and, uh, and go from there and simply learn a skill. You're seeing areas of things like apprenticeships that are making a bit of a comeback. Um, but I, the, the example that comes to mind, Chris, and I think I have this right. Uh, so if, if this isn't uh, the correct example, please edit this out. I think it's for um, General Electric, and they're running national TV ads showing a young, young man, new hire, and he writes code. And he's explaining to his friends about how cool it is that he's writing code um, for these very practical, innovative sorts of things. And the friends are looking at him, but wait a minute, you're working for GE? 
and, yes. and they're not they're not getting it. So I think it's a very clever campaign. It's just one step, but I think that there is a uh, there's a perception problem in terms of what those jobs are like, what the future is, um, what they pay, and your ability to bring creativity. You know, we're, with uh, a lot of the, the younger folks, they they want a sense of 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 innovation, of creativity, that they contribute to a team, they're coming up with ideas, and there's probably an old perception about an assembly line <laughs> that that also does not apply to them. That, that is not reality. So well, absolutely. It, I mean, I'm going to be very honest with you. Anytime I hear the word manufacturing industry, you think big box, hot, sweaty workers, assembly line, you know, pushing a part or, you know, in a, you know, it's just you think grueling ways. And now some of that might be just the fact that, um, you know, we haven't updated our I guess our our understanding of it, or we haven't shared the story, but I, that's what makes me wonder: is it the fact that we haven't told the story well? And you're right about that commercial; it is a GE commercial, and I think it's actually pretty clever as well, because it is giving people an, a different way of thinking about it. But I don't think; I mean, even if you think even in the political landscape, or you think about uh, just nationally how we talk about. Uh, coal miners and you know all the manufacturing jobs and all that we mm-hmm. it never sounds like oh yeah that means i could write code for that manufacturing plant and all of the plants around the country like you don't think that you just think oh they want me to go work 16 hours a day you know pushing apart in widgets exactly had another client recently uh, uh this was uh, three or four years ago uh called o power uh, and they they had a really interesting business. They they uh, took take data uh, and software and predictive analytics and all that good stuff. And their customers are utilities who are trying to go um, to make energy efficiency programs work. So get people to uh, install different kinds of light bulbs, vary how they use power, you know, go through all those sorts of steps. And it's interesting that historically people don't pay attention to those sorts of things. Uh, so those energy efficiency programs that your local utility is pushing uh, in the past have just been widely ignored. And so whether your interest is in saving money or protecting the environment or, or the like, uh, it's, it's been a frustrating process. So they, they had some smart young people, a lot of them doing coding to doing uh, database work, etc. Uh, and, bringing some new thinking and new tools to the utilities business, and they have greatly increased the success and the compliance on those energy efficiency programs. There is, the, you, you know, pick out your, uh, you might consider stodgy old industry, manufacturing, uh, utilities, mining, as you, you said, along with all the other, um, you know, digital and social and, uh, uh, and other kinds of uh, SaaS, software as a service kind of industries. There is innovation everywhere. And it depends upon the skills and, and the mindset and the, and the positive disruption that younger workers can bring. And so, uh, again, I find a recognition of that across a lot of different industries. And, uh, and I think that's so, – so coming back to your original question about you know, how, how do you connect? How do you do that? Um, a lot of it is that the perception doesn't match the reality. 
and it becomes uh, incumbent upon those organizational leaders, those executives, to figure out how to connect and, and how, to, how to get their message across um, and, and recruit those right people in and, and have a part of the team. You know, and I think you, you're, you're telling the truth. And, you know, here's something that I kind of think about as you were talking. You hear the same names all the time who are out front, very vocal about their companies and the things that they're doing. You hear of the Tim Cooks. You hear of Jeff Bezos. You hear of, you know, all of these different names, right? And, you know, you see them. I will be honest with you. I cannot name a manufacturing company here in the United States whose CEO and whose leadership team is out in the front and open. What I do hear is someone speaking on the manufacturing industry's behalf, but I've never really seen that CEO standing out and saying, hey, we're out here, you know, here's some cool things we're doing. But, you know, when you hear Jeff Bezos, every time he's turning around, he's telling you about something cool Amazon is doing, right? You see Microsoft doing the same thing. And I never really see that industry really putting forth the effort to put themselves and spend the money just like, you know, the other guys are who are ensure that you're going to know their name. And I would even say from the time that you're a kid all the way until it's time for you to make a decision about where you're going to have a career. Um, I, a quick story. Um, I'm in love with Best Buy and probably will be uh, a Best Buy lifer forever and here's the reason why um i remember being in college and um you know normally companies will stop by and you know you get a chance to kind of meet some different people and recruiters and those sort of things right well this was years ago and i'll never forget walking through campus i had no idea best buy was first of all i didn't know what the heck a best buy was because at that time uh comp usa was huge um you know i'm kind of dating myself here but there were larger you know (laughs) larger companies that were really, really big at that time before they folded. And nobody knew what the heck a Best Buy was. But they did something really simple. They had this massive tent in the middle of my campus. And all they did was have a tent that you walk through and you saw all the latest technology. And they let you know that, hey, if you work with us, you not only get to see the latest technology, but you also get to share it with customers. And I had never heard of really Best Buy, didn't know anything about what the heck a Best Buy was, but this was right about the turn uh, before they really became um, a very large company. And it was just, it was because of that sort of thing, right? They were in my face. They were in a place that I would normally go to. And now, like, you won't get me to shop at another store like that to buy technology. I always get everything <laughs> from, from Best Buy. Like even I almost even toy between my Apple products of going to an Apple store versus going to Best Buy. I mean, literally, like that's how strong of a connection that I have because of that one simple thing. I don't see manufacturing doing that. So, hey, if there's somebody listening as a manufacturing CEO, here's some good ideas, you know, between me and Jim about how to get this done. <laughs> well, and, and that's a great story, Chris, and it shows the power of a, of a really simple step. Um, in fact, they weren't. I'd say this, they weren't necessarily in your face, but they invited you behind the curtain to see exactly. some cool stuff. And so they weren't at the job fair behind a folding table with some brochures right. <laughs> um, and, and that sort of thing. So they just, they took a little extra step. And I would say to people who uh, are running, either they're, 
speaking for an industry or more likely from your listeners, they have their own company and, and it could be in something that's considered really cool or there could be something that's not well understood. I would say, look, you don't have to shave your head and pretend to be Jeff Bezos. Right. <laughs> um, you can, this can happen on your terms, your comfort level, and in a way that's going to come across as authentic anyway. We use that, that term a lot. Uh, but there are some simple steps. It just takes a little intentionality on both sides of this. And Absolutely. Again, uh, that, is, that is part of the value of what you're doing. There are simple steps that you can make as that, that younger worker to find opportunities, make yourself visible, ask good questions, um, and make yourself seen as more and more valuable. And there are certainly steps that the executive leadership can take to help convey their value, uh, to help tell their story in a way that's still comfortable for them. Now, as you can hear, Jim is a very fascinating gentleman. And he's not just fascinating because he has something to talk about, but it's because he really does care about messaging. He cares about you getting it right as an individual, as a corporation, uh, and even to your end user and your customer. Thank you guys so much for listening to part one. But wait, there's more. In two days, as you know, you will hear part two of my interview with Jim Carr. This is a great man, great gentleman, and he's doing a lot of great things for companies just like yours to be able to hear how to manage the message. If you would, please share your thoughts and ideas with us. Like we really like to read them and hear about them. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at High Level Wisdom. You can email me directly, Chris at High Level Wisdom. I would love to get your feedback, your thoughts, what you're thinking about this interview and previous others. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take care. As you know, it's happening right now. Yes, inside of your company. Baby boomers are retiring and walking out of the door with so much knowledge, it's hard to be able to keep up. We actually now offer today exclusively to you as a corporation, our high level wisdom workshop. If you would like to hear more, go to our website, highlevelwisdom.com to learn how we can work with you in order to close the knowledge gap between your baby boomer leadership and emerging millennial leaders.